Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst, the intelligence cell and the forgotten victims. So I left off in episode 23 talking about the other probable offences put to PS by Keith Hellowell. And I didn't manage to get through them all in the last episode. And I think you're probably starting to understand what a deep dive really means. When I started out in this reinvestigation, I thought this would probably be a 10 episode series. But this has been a long process due to the extensiveness of this case and P.S.'s behaviour. And every time I think I've reached the end, I discover something even more mind-blowing and confounding than all that's gone before. And I just didn't think that that was possible. There are so many twists and turns, and I really do want to do this case justice for the sake of the victims, many of whom have been forgotten. But perhaps it gives you a real insight into the fact that there are so many unsolved murders of women and there are also many potential attacks that P.S. may have committed. And every time I think I've found most of them, I find another potential offence that I want to share with you and you can make your own mind up. And I have to say, I really wish that this wasn't the case. But at least with the long-form podcast, I can really deep dive and get into the nuanced, granular detail. I'm not governed by it's a two-part series for TV or it being someone else's show. That's the beauty of creating your own podcast and doing your own reinvestigation your way. And it's important for you to hear it all. So I hope you're sticking with it and following along. You're riding shotgun with me and I'm trying to really show you my process step by step. And I think you probably now have an understanding of how prolific serial perpetrators can be across their offending careers. This case and others really underline why criminal behavioural analysis and linkage analysis is so important and investment in skilled teams who can undertake this work and know what they're looking for. 
Now, of course, forensic science also plays a very important role and exhibits shouldn't be destroyed immediately after someone is convicted for exactly this reason. Okay, so I'm going to recap some of the other cases PS may well have committed, some of which were most likely in the other eight probables and ten possibles. So I'm diving back in here with a case I haven't discussed yet. The case of Jacqueline Ansel Lamb. At about 2.30pm on Sunday the 8th of March 1970, 18-year-old Jacqueline Ansel Lamb was at the start of the M1 in North London, which was about 200 miles from Manchester. Jackie, as she liked to be called, was trying to get home to Manchester. She had managed to thumb a lift, but she never made it home. Now, just a comment about hitchhiking. It wasn't that unusual back in the day, but of course it put someone at higher risk when considering victimology. Jackie disappeared, and one week later, on Saturday, March the 14th, 1970, a farmer called Ted Whitaker found Jackie's body off a rural road near Squarewood, Mere, Nutsford. Jackie's body was face down in a copse. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled with an electrical flex. The bruises on her neck and cuts on her face were defensive injuries. She had fought for her life. Dressed in a maxi coat, mustard jumper and steel grey tights, she was lying off Bentleyhurst Lane, close to the B5569 Chester to Manchester Road. Her blue and white miniskirt and buckled maroon leather patent shoes were found nearby. Now, a number of people have said that Jackie had a wound to her head, her skirt had been placed next to her, and her body had been posed. Police also found her distinctive Japanese airline shoulder bag and a diary. Seven months later, another similar murder happened. On Monday the 12th of October 1970, 24-year-old Barbara Mayo, a trainee teacher, was hitchhiking from Hendon, North London, but was trying to go northbound up the A1. She intended to get to Catterick, North Yorkshire. Sadly, she never made it. She was found strangled in woods at Alt Hucknall by a group of friends from Mansfield. She had been raped and strangled and had a wound to the back of her head. Ten months after her murder, Scotland Yard said that they were investigating the possibility that Jacqueline's murder, plus that of Barbara Mayo, could be linked to two others. Susan Long was 18 when she was found strangled in a lane in Norfolk on March 10th, 1970, and Rita Sawyer, who was also 18, was stabbed to death and found in a cornfield near Harbury, Warwickshire, between the M1 and M5 on September the 5th, 1970. Now, at one time, it was believed that the killer of all four women could have used the motorway system as a rapid escape route. Well, that's most likely true. And guess who regularly used the motorways? And to date, these murders remain unsolved. Now, I've already talked about the 19-year-old unnamed female typist who was attacked on Friday the 29th of December 1972 in episode 15, and I posted her photo fit, which bore a striking similarity to P.S. Now, a quick recap to refresh your memory. She left the pub in Wakefield at around 10.30pm. 
It was a foggy night, and as she walked along, she realised that she was being followed and turned around and saw a man with staring eyes, dark longish hair and a beard. He then attacked her. And as I said, she did a photo fit that looked just like P.S. And then there was 32-year-old Wendy Sewell, who was attacked in Bakewell Cemetery in Derbyshire at lunchtime on September 12, 1973. Wendy was a legal secretary. When Wendy's body was found, she had been beaten about the head with the handle of a pickaxe and had been sexually assaulted. Her trousers, plimsolls, pants and parts of her bra had been removed. 17-year-old cemetery groundsman Stephen Downing found her body and was arrested and convicted for her murder. Despite having learning difficulties and a reading age of 11, Stephen Downing was arrested and questioned for nine hours without a solicitor present. He said police had pressured him into signing the confession, which he later retracted. In 2002, Stephen Downing's conviction was overturned after he'd served 27 years in prison. In January 2014, a former unnamed detective analysing other potentially linked murders carried out by PS obtained a pathology report in Wendy's case that Derbyshire police had buried in 1973. He said it would have completely contradicted the so-called confession, exonerated Stephen Downing, and it would have prevented a miscarriage of justice. Well, suffice to say, this is extremely concerning. I mean, how many more miscarriages of justice are there? And 27 years is a long time in prison for a murder you didn't commit. And Stephen Downing had to change prisons eight times as he was attacked, as he was deemed to be a sex offender. And his refusal to admit to the crime meant he wasn't eligible for parole. Stephen Downing received compensation of £750,000 from the Home Office because he was not informed he was under arrest nor that he had the right to a solicitor. According to a statement on Derbyshire Police's website, the case is still unsolved, but it's now closed and will only be reopened if new evidence comes to light. Meanwhile, of course, the real killer's identity remains unknown. Utterly horrific. And this is a huge public protection issue. It's in no one's interest for there to be a miscarriage of justice and it really makes my blood boil the amount that I'm uncovering with this one case alone. It really is alarming and concerning, not to mention utterly horrific how many lives have been ruined because of this one case and because of PS and because of decisions taken by officers due to wanting a clear-up on a case. It's just utterly unconscionable. So back to other potentially linked offences. The next case I want to tell you about is Rosina Hilliard. She was a 24-year-old prostitute and her body was found by a lorry driver at 7am on Friday the 22nd of February 1974 at a building site near Humberston Road in Leicester. She had been hit by a car and suffered extensive head injuries and fractures to her spine and collarbone. Her skull had been smashed from behind possibly with a hammer, but a post-mortem examination confirmed someone had also attempted to strangle her. Police said it wasn't known which injury caused her death, and her case remains unsolved. 
Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Now, according to Tim Hicks and Chris Clark, PS would travel on the M1, then on to Leicester, crossover A47 to the A1 to Duxford, where his sister Maureen lived. And it would take him right past the spot where Rosie Hilliard was murdered, just off the A47 Humberston Road. Then there's 17-year-old Caroline Doreen Allen, who was a part-time nanny. On the 10th of April 1974, Caroline disappeared whilst returning home from work at Walnut Avenue, Bramcott, Nottingham. That evening, she'd planned to catch the bus to her home 15 miles away in Canalton in Nottinghamshire. But she was also known to hitchhike. Well, almost two years later, on December the 3rd, 1975, Caroline's body was found at Old Dolby Wood, Little Belvoir, Leicestershire. Her remains were skeletal and had been disturbed by wildlife. The pathologist was unable to identify a cause of death, but was able to confirm that she had been beaten about the back of her head. Her genes were missing, indicating a potential sexual motive. Although Caroline had been abducted in Nottingham, Leicestershire Police was the lead force because the body had been found in its force area. P.S.'s sister Maureen's second child was born at the RAF Hospital Ely on the 1st of April 1974. Maureen and Baby returned to their home in Duxford. P.S. most likely would have visited her in hospital and or at home and potentially he would have travelled the 196 miles from Bradford to Duxford via the M1, then cross over to the A1 and return via the same route. Well, it's believed that Caroline Allen was hitchhiking along the A52, which connects the M1 to the A1 and Duxford via the A606 link road to Melton Mulbray via Oakham to the A1 at Stamford and then Cambridgeshire. Now, this potentially would have been a convenient route for P.S. to travel along to and from his sister's house in Duxford. Then there was 28-year-old Gloria Wood, who was attacked on November the 11th in 1974, whom I talked about in episode 15. You might recall Gloria crossed playing fields close to her home in Bradford, and a man approached her and asked if he could carry her bag. Gloria declined, and the next thing she recalled was waking up in hospital. She had been struck four times on the head with a ball-peen hammer, a tool used by P.S. in many of his attacks. And you may also recall Rosemary Steed. Just two weeks before Emily Jackson was murdered, 18-year-old Rosemary was hit over the back of the head on Wednesday the 6th of January 1976. Rosemary was attacked from behind and left unconscious on the ground. The attack was witnessed by pedestrians and drivers who described her attacker as 25 to 30 years old, 
five feet nine inches tall, slim build with dark hair, a moustache and a beard. The attack wasn't linked with Emily or Wilma because Rosemary wasn't a prostitute, but nor was it linked with the earlier attacks on the 19-year-old typist Gloria Wood, Anna Rajolsky, Olive Smelt or Tracy Brown. And then you'll recall Barbara Ann Young, who was the mother of two young children. She was working as a prostitute to support her children, and she was found by a friend in Broxholm Lane, Doncaster, bleeding and unconscious on Tuesday, March the 22nd, 1976. She told her friend a punter had led her into an alleyway between Broxholm Lane and Christchurch Road. Barbara had extensive head injuries, and her friend put her to bed, but sadly Barbara didn't make it through the night. The post-mortem revealed that Barbara had a fractured skull, which caused a massive hemorrhage as a result. 39-year-old Maureen Hogan was attacked on the 29th of August 1976 after she left the Pentagon nightclub in Bradford at around 1.30am and started to walk home. Maureen was rushed to the Bradford Royal Infirmary. She had severe head injuries and multiple stab wounds to her abdomen. Fortunately, Maureen survived the attack, but couldn't give a description of the person who attacked her. And then there was 27-year-old Elizabeth Paravicini, who was attacked on the 9th of September 1977 in London. Elizabeth was on her way back to her parents' house in the Grove in Isleworth, London. She was hit on the back of the head, and she died as a result. Then there was 20-year-old Carol Wilkinson, who was attacked on Monday the 10th of October 1977. Carol was walking to work at Armand's Bakery in Bradford. Just before 10am, a man found Carol lying face down in a pool of blood. Her trousers and knickers had been pulled down and her bra had been pulled up. She had been hit over the back of her head and it's believed that the perpetrator had been disturbed and had run off. You'll recall sometime later, Anthony Steele was arrested and convicted for her murder. After 20 years, his conviction was quashed as it was deemed unsafe. Then there was the unnamed prostitute who was attacked on December the 14th, 1977 in a multi-storey car park in Doncaster. She survived, thank goodness, and said she had seen the man on another occasion driving away from Doncaster Lorry Park. She described the man as being around 35 years of age, tall, slim, with brushed back dark hair and a beard and a moustache. She did do a photo fit, which I haven't seen, but Tim and Chris report that it matched closely with the other photo fits of PS, but it didn't come to the attention of the Link series investigation team. And remember the unnamed 18-year-old who was attacked on Tuesday the 28th of November 1977, whom I told you about in episode 16, and I don't expect you to recall all the details of every attack. And let's face it, there are so many, sadly. And this was a case where there aren't many known details about this near miss to murder, other than the fact that she was walking through Bradford in the evening when she sensed that she was being followed by a man. The man suddenly grabbed her hair, and in the struggle, she managed to throw a brick at him and he ran off. She did get a good look at him, and she did report the attack to the police. She described the attacker as being around 30 years old, slim build, straggly hair, and a mandarin moustache and goatee beard. Now, this attack wasn't flagged to the investigative team at the time, apparently, and so yet another opportunity was lost. 
I also told you about Ivan Myslovich, the 21-year-old local newspaper reporter who was attacked from behind by a man with a ball-peen hammer in Ilkley in 1979. She was crossing a railway bridge at the train station. Yvonne suffered a serious and severe head injury. And again, despite her accurate description of P.S., police dismissed the attack as the work of a copycat criminal. In fact, then 16-year-old Brian Copping had crossed the footbridge and made eye contact with Yvonne and had a chat with her just minutes before she was attacked. He saw a man loitering behind her, who walked towards him, who tried to hide his face. Minutes later, Yvonne was attacked. Brian was startled by a man running behind him. He described him as black hair, a beard, wearing a khaki waist-length coat, greenish trousers and black boots. The man jumped into a lorry and drove off. Brian reported him to the police and did a photo fit. Yvonne also did a photo fit when she came out of a coma. Now, apparently, they both produced similar photo fits, but the police dismissed the attack as the work of a copycat. But Brian 100% believes that the man who attacked Yvonne was P.S. He was convinced after he saw the photos of P.S. when he was arrested. Now, you may recall that I queried why police thought this may have been a copycat, particularly given how unique this M.O., this modus operandi, was. Well, I've been doing some more digging. And I found out potentially why the police believed this was the work of a copycat. At a similar time, there was a high-profile case in the north of England. The case was, and still is, referred to as the Black Panther. Now, as you know, I really don't like to use monikers, but it's important to highlight the name here for two reasons. The first is to say that a reporter dubbed the offender the Black Panther Yes, another horrific moniker, and I'm going to circle back to why momentarily. The offender was eventually arrested. His name was Donald Nilsson, and he was from none other than Bradford. Nilsson committed what has been identified as his first three murders in 1974. During post office robberies, he shot dead Donald Skepper in Harrogate in February 1974, Derek Aston of Baxenden in September 1974 and Sydney Greyland, as well as brutally battering Margaret Greyland in Langley, West Midlands, during November 1974. Now, he was dubbed the Black Panther by a reporter because he wore all black and moved quickly, according to one eyewitness. And talking about his moniker, guess what? He traded off that name. It made him feel very powerful. He even joked about it and said he wouldn't have had the cachet if he were called the Pink Panther. Now, there's a recurring theme, and the media are still not learning the lessons that these names must be avoided. But back to Nilsson. Well, Nilsson also abducted Leslie Whittle, who was a 17-year-old girl and the daughter of a noted coach transport business owner, George Whittle. After reading about a family dispute over George Whittle's will, Nilsson planned across a number of years that he would break into their house in Shropshire and kidnap Leslie from her bedroom and demand money. And that's exactly what he did. Nilsson calculated that the family would not materially miss £50,000 of their fortune and so made a subsequent demand for that sum in a note left at the family home. Now, a series of police bungles and other circumstances resulted in Whittle's brother Ronald being unable to deliver the ransom money to the place and at the time demanded by the kidnapper. 
Sadly, Leslie Whittle's body was found on the 7th of March 1975, hanging from a wire at the bottom of the drainage shaft where she'd been held in Staffordshire. Nilsson was subsequently arrested in December 1975, and he later confessed. He was convicted in 1976, and he received five life sentences. Now, there were three police forces that were involved in the investigation, and it was found that there was a lack of cooperation across the police forces, and so a commander from New Scotland Yard was brought in to coordinate the inquiry. Well, unfortunately, this was a bungled police investigation right from the start, and there was a later review for the so-called lessons to be learned. Does that sound somewhat familiar? Well, Lord Byford mentions the review of this case and the fact that lessons clearly hadn't been learned in the West Yorkshire Police investigation into PS, and I'll be returning to this. You see, the point of me telling you about Donald Nilsson in relation to the attack on Yvonne is that through my further research, I discovered that after Nilsson was convicted, there was a copycat killer who tried to emulate Nilsson by shooting multiple people. And so this appears to be the reason why the police thought it was a copycat, as it had happened before. And it's not the first time the Black Panther, yes, this horrific moniker and case, has come up whilst I'd been reinvestigating this case. You see, when Tracy Brown was attacked, she screamed out, Black Panther, Black Panther, as she thought it might be him. Now, it piqued my interest then, and I looked at the case and later discovered that there was a copycat offender. And so I believe, given the zeitgeist at the time, this is why the police believe there may have been a copycat perpetrator attacking women. When analysing and reinvestigating cases, for me it's really important to know and understand what's going on in the zeitgeist at the time. It can be very relevant as to why an offender took a certain decision, or in this case, it can impact on police decision-making. And so I'm always interested in what was going on at the time of an attack, the macro and the micro. Also, people think copycat killers are much more common than what they are in reality. Yes, it can happen, but it's extremely rare in my experience and much more the subject of Hollywood movies than it is a reality. And this is always the danger, and I've seen it happen a number of times where one case that may be the exception and an anomaly can get normed as if it's common, and it appears to have happened here. It's an example of the wrong lessons being learned, and it meant that Yvonne's case wasn't linked despite the striking similarities and description. Then there was the unnamed woman who was attacked in North Yorkshire and hit over the back of the head. The police decided that she fell and hit her head on the ice. The pathologist said otherwise, but they still wrote it up that she fell on the ice. In episode 16, I also mentioned that P.S. had a girlfriend in Scotland and that I would return to this. Well, P.S. made delivery runs north of the border and stayed with his 35-year-old girlfriend, Teresa Douglas, in Holytown, Lanarkshire. Over the years, P.S. has been linked with a number of unsolved killings north of the border, including those of Carol Lannan and Elizabeth McCabe in Dundee. Elizabeth's body was found on February 26, 1980, her 21st birthday. She had been missing for 16 days after leaving a nightclub in the city when her partially clothed body was found in Templeton Woods, where 11 months earlier the remains of 18-year-old Carol Lannan were discovered. 
both women had been strangled. Therefore, it was initially believed that both cases were linked. However, as the investigation progressed, the police started to think otherwise. Elizabeth had been out on a night with a friend in Teaser's disco in Dundee's city centre. Unfortunately, when they went to leave, they became separated, and Elizabeth wasn't ever seen again. Carol, the mother of a three-month-old baby, was last seen getting into what was thought to be a Ford Cortina estate car in Exchange Street in the city's red light district on March the 20th, 1979. Now, the taxi trade became a key focus of the investigations in both murders, and interviews were carried out with drivers across the city. Now, that's curious to me as well. Why were they not investigating men seeking out prostitutes at this time? Now, shortly after Carol Lannan's body was found, her handbag was found on the banks of the River Don in Aberdeenshire, some 85 miles from Dundee. However, in both cases, the investigation stalled. In 2004, police began a cold case review, which led to a taxi driver called Vincent Simpson being charged with Elizabeth's murder. He had run a taxi business from the village of Newtown near Dundee and had been interviewed by police at the time of the killing. The trial took place at the High Court in Edinburgh in 2007. Vincent Simpson's lawyer, who was a QC, argued that the DNA evidence was flawed and that there was a risk of contamination as items from both the accused and the victim had been stored together. Now, after seven weeks of evidence, Vincent Simpson was found not guilty. And so the case remains unsolved. Now, as I said before, Elizabeth and Carol's murders were included in the secret reinvestigation by Keith Hellowell. Again, so much of this work is dependent on analysing the nuanced detail of the behaviour in each case, understanding the motivation of the perpetrator and comparing it to a detailed timeline of P.S. P.S. was certainly very mobile and he had anchor points in Scotland and other parts of the UK like London. He was a lorry driver and so it was exactly right to look at other offences committed elsewhere. However, it's worth me reiterating that the Byford and Sampson reports remits were not to look at other offences that P.S. may have committed, and as far as I'm aware, they never revisited offences post-timelining P.S. It was only Keith Hallowell who did this years later, and I'm unclear of the offence details and whether they extensively timeline P.S., and then what the criteria they used in their decision-making was that would lead to these 10 probables that they put to PS, and not the other 10, or indeed the 64 offences in total. And of course, it's worth highlighting that they weren't experts in the field of criminal behavioural analysis or offender psychology, and so that's a limitation too. Keith Hallowell was doing the best that he could because he clearly believed that P.S. committed many more crimes. And there are a number of other murders that you've also heard me talk about with Sharon Boyle. Now, Sharon and her colleague wrote to P.S. about these murders specifically, and I'm talking about the murders of Fred Craven and John Tolmy. So let me remind you of both of those cases. Fred Craven was a bookmaker who was killed in 1966. Fred was smashed over the head with a blunt instrument at his betting shop in Bingley, West Yorkshire, by someone who also stole £200. Police arrested Michael Sutcliffe, P.S.'s younger brother at the time, but he wasn't charged. And they failed to interview P.S., who had repeatedly pestered Mr Craven's daughter to go out with him. 
Now, the two families did live near to each other, and the betting shop was close to where P.S. worked at the time, at the cemetery. John Tomey was a taxi driver who was attacked on the 22nd of March 1967 by a male passenger that he picked up from Leeds City Centre. Recalling the night he picked his attacker up, John Tomey told the Daily Mirror this. I'd been home for my supper and I was going back to the rank in Leeds at about 11pm and there was just one fair standing there. He shuffled over the back seat and sat behind me and put a black holder in the well between his feet. He asked to be taken to Bradford, changing his mind about the destination several times during the journey. I talked to him in my rearview mirror for three quarters of an hour. I remember little things like him saying he didn't have any money. We were talking like old mates. I never thought he would ever have done that. All I was worried about was not getting paid. Then after ending up in the countryside lost, John was struck over the back of his head with a hammer eight times. John believes he only escaped death because he leaned forward to get a map. He said this. He hit me from behind. It was unbelievable pain. My brain exploded from the inside. I presume he hit me eight times because I had eight or nine fractures. I needed about 48 stitches. When I regained consciousness, my driver's window had been smashed to pieces. I drove away and left him on the moors. John's skull was fractured in eight places and he was in hospital for three weeks. He did a photo fit after the attack, which I haven't seen. Apparently, it was the spitting image of P.S. and he later ID'd him in 20 seconds. Okay, so that's 26 cases right there that I've highlighted including two male victims. I'll say something about the victimology momentarily. I'd first want to make the point that it's really hard to do any in-depth behavioural analysis in all of these other cases without more accurate, detailed and reliable behavioural information. As I said at the very start of this series, the devil is in the detail with my work, as you now understand having come on this journey with me. And so it's just not possible for me to say anything more concrete about whether these 26 other offences are linked and were committed by PS. I would need much more behaviourally rich information to say one way or the other, and I would need a comprehensive timeline of PS. Records show PS worked for Bradford Base T and WH Clark Holdings Limited as a lorry driver delivering goods to and from a number of black country destinations throughout this period. We know he used the M1 and went back and forth to London and other parts of the UK, including Scotland. So this is exactly why this detailed linkage analysis work is needed. Now, if I were the analyst working this case, I would be making requests for the case papers in all of these cases, as well as wanting to re-interview surviving victims and officers in the case and timelining PS. I would expect that there would be more unsolved cases out there and I would want to appeal to officers and victims to flag those cases to me for further analyses. I too work on the basis of probabilities and possibilities and I keep going back to what's the possibility there are two dark-haired men, both with moustaches and beards, engaging victims in conversation and then hitting them over the back of the head with a hammer. I mean, it's possible but it's highly unlikely in my experience, 
And so just on that basis alone, it gives you a good jumping off point. And victimology wise, it is possible that PS attacked men as well as women if things didn't go his way. It cannot be ruled out. But the attacks on men would be much more functional in nature. I'll say more about this in my psychological autopsy and profiling episode of PS. Now, some have also said that if PS had committed any other offences, forensics would have ruled him in or out. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Firstly, forensic evidence was not retrieved in every case. Then there's the issue of what sort of forensic evidence was recovered and how much of a sample there was and where it was recovered from. Was it preserved and if so, how? Is it still available? And of course, even if there were forensic evidence, it may not directly relate to or belong to the killer. You see, much of the work at crime scenes comes down to the context and interpretation of the evidence. That's why they're called CSIs, crime scene investigators. Forensic evidence, as we now know, can be so important in cases. Many cases are solved through forensic science and forensic investigative analysis, which is why I always include a caveat in my reports that if there is a DNA hit with an offence or a perpetrator, that must assume priority over any behavioural analysis or advice given. However, we have to remember that this case happened prior to any major DNA or forensic science developments, and so much less was known at the time. And the other challenge is that much of the evidence relating to P.S. himself has been destroyed. Now, Alan Foster, a retired detective constable who worked on the initial investigation, later spoke out about how he was ordered to destroy many items seized by police after P.S. was convicted. But P.S.'s DNA, importantly, was on the DNA database. However, in terms of forensic evidence, he took clothes, shoes and tools to a local furnace. Labels from the exhibits he destroyed make for chilling reading. A sharpened screwdriver, women's knickers, a leather apron and gloves, a pin hammer. Now he did, however, retain a number of the items, believing that future advances in DNA testing might prove them to be important. They included the V-neck jumper worn by PS as part of his rape kill kit. You know, the one that they didn't search and seize and then enter into evidence at the criminal trial. Now, having kept the item safely in his loft for 20 years, the retired detective claims to have returned them to his former force years ago. But it does beg the question, why would they immediately want to destroy all of those items? Surely it would have been much more prudent to keep them, particularly if they were truly interested and invested in linking other potential offences. It sounds to me like they were done and had no interest particularly if the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, had no interest in prosecuting him for future offences. Again, this is a huge missed opportunity. And by the way, in the Donald Nielsen case, at the point that the review took place for lessons to be learned, most of the case papers had been destroyed. So I'm drawing your attention to some recurring patterns that continue to repeat. But returning to Keith Hallowell's review... After 10 years of interviewing P.S., Keith Hallowell concluded that P.S.'s victims would have initially felt safe with him because he, and I quote, seemed like a nice guy. Yes, this is spot on. And it's so different from the mythology created by the media, police and others. And it's exactly what I've been saying whilst I've been deconstructing the series. 
Fact versus fiction. Keith Hellowell also said this. This idea that serial killers are raving mad with staring eyes, it's not the case at all. That's the danger. At the height of the investigation, when people were in fear of this man, he could go and talk to a young girl and offer to walk her home to keep her safe from this dangerous man. Exactly. And that's exactly what he did. He even got a kick out of it. That's instructive about his psychopathology. More on that to come in my next episode. And I have to say that's the most sensible thing I've heard any police officer say thus far about this case. And it's spot on. I have seen evidence of this throughout my analysis of this entire case, and there's one last thing Keith Hallowell said, which was this. At the end of my visits, I thought he was playing games. I think he quite enjoyed having a senior officer visiting. Well, of course he did, and of course he was. So at least here there's one experienced professional and detective who got P.S.'s measure and wasn't taken in by him. I have to say it's such a great pity that Keith Hallowell wasn't in charge of the investigation from the start, but he was a junior officer at the time. But perhaps if he was, or someone like him, this case may have been handled completely differently and had an entirely different outcome. Suffice to say that following all the interviews with P.S., and ten years later, after all that time, effort and energy, Keith Hallowell's team announced that they had no plans to charge P.S. with any further matters. It's unbelievable, really, and incredibly frustrating, particularly when we know how prolific P.S. was. And I bet P.S. couldn't believe his luck. And I have to say that it's more than luck. I don't think it's an overreach to say it's more like a form of collusion. The message to P.S. and others at its most basic level might well be interpreted as the women weren't and aren't important. And that makes me angry all over again, because they were, and they are important, and the women deserve to be honoured by the truth, 40 years on. Every woman matters. It's why I've spent all of these episodes talking about them, naming them, describing what happened, honouring them. And I'll only spend one episode talking about him to strip the learning out, to extrapolate it once and for all from everything that I've discovered about what he did, how he did it, why he did it, and how he got away with it for so long. So I'm signing off for now, feeling angry all over again. And I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell for my next episode, The Psychological Autopsy and Profile of P.S. Until then... Be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Harvoga Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. 